Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Recorded live. From Coolidge, Arizona, on February the 27th, 2014. If you have episodes all the way from beginning, this is episode 40. And um, lesson-wise, we're on part three of the book of Revelation, lesson number five of part three, chapter seven. Tonight we begin with verse one. And it begins this way. Because now in this chapter, um, chapter seven answers the question of chapter six. And we'll review that. Uh, we're, we're only going to get two or three verses tonight. <clears throat> I can feel that. And um, so we'll just go as we can. But I saw four, in verse one, after this, I saw four angels. Now, if you have previous notes, you can look at them, go back to them. But we're going to move on for tonight. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Now, I'm going to suggest that the earth is square and has four corners. And if you hear that and accept it, then you need to have your head examined. But usually, if you go back to Ezekiel with the four living creatures, we're not going to do that here, but in chapter 1, we... there is an inclination that the number four sometimes means just what it says. It's just a one, two, three, four. But sometimes, like when it's used here, it, it's a sense of universality, universal. There's something universal about the number four. And the cherubim in, in Ezekiel chapter one could go in all four directions. Well, their jurisdiction was universal. So I think in that sense, in the symbolism of Ezekiel, we can make application of it here, at least to ponder, that when he talks about uh, the four angels standing at the four corners, he's talking about a full representation of the earth. And we do have north, south, east, and west, and those are not corners, but everywhere you go, you've got north, south, east, or west. Unless you're at the very top, then you don't have north, right? But anyway, um, suggesting to begin with that the four angels standing at the four corners uh, representing the universal uh, situation of the earth here, holding back the four winds. We want to talk about winds, the winds of the earth. And by the way, coming down here tonight, there is a strong wind coming across Highway 87, enough to actually move my truck. I don't suppose significantly, but it felt like it. 
<clears throat> so holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. So there's going to be a pause. We've got a pause going on here. And it is probably wise for us <clears throat> to introduce an idea now before we get into where it will be applicable in our text. But <clears throat> all suffering that people experience in the Bible is not necessarily the judgment of God. And I've got a comment here. Consider that all suffering is not the judgment of God. Sometimes the innocent suffer with the guilty, but are not being punished with the guilty, even though they are suffering with the guilty. And I think of Noah and the ark and of everybody there but the eight, all the babies, innocent babies, they suffered with the guilty, but were they being punished? No. And um, we probably ought to plug into uh, Ezekiel 18.20, although we all know pretty well what this says, and it's foundational to our belief, of, belief in individual responsibility. In Ezekiel 18.20, the person who sins will die. The, the son will not bear the punishment of the father's iniquity. Now, he does not say that he won't experience any suffering, but he will not bear what? The punishment. We need to separate the punishment from suffering. <clears throat> Nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. Is the father likely to suffer? When a son goes awry, of course. But he's not being punished for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself. Totally individual responsibility, folks. And the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. That's clear. That's the... That's one of the underlying themes of the Bible, individual responsibility. Well, there's more in that context, but I, we're probably familiar with, enough with it. We don't have to go through it now. But <clears throat> it reminds me of something not exactly in line with where we are right now in our discussion, but last week I mentioned about our view of God. And <clears throat> I think it was in this class that when we we ask about why the world is here, what our world view is, we ought not think of it in terms as God being needy. needy. God is not needy. Acts chapter 17 in Paul's sermon on Mars Hill, he said, don't think that God has any need of anything. <laughs> And uh, we discussed all the hosts of heaven. And God, God's got more creatures and living beings around him than you and I have ever witnessed in our life. 
far more than the population of the earth from the beginning to the end, myriads upon myriads of hosts in God's presence. God is not lonely, but because God has made us as he is in many respects in his image, he wants us to be in fellowship with him. But when we think of God as being having created man because he's needy, then we develop a mentality of neediness in ourselves. And we develop needy people in the church because we become like the God we envision. See, if we see God as needing, needy, then pretty soon we become needy. So we have a lot of needy folks in the church. Some of it's derived from the idea that that's what we hold about God. And I, would, and I want to steer us away from the idea. Now, God certainly wants us to be in his fellowship. That's why he has created a kingdom, uh, universal, and the church geographically located, the physical arrangement where we can be in fellowship with us because that's where he is. He's in the church. The church is deity. It has all of the traits of God in it. And so he calls us into his fellowship. But it's not based on God has a need, but of the value that God places upon mankind. Now, when, because God is just, when people depart from his ways, there will be consequences. And those consequences are not always limit, limited to the people who violated God's justice. See that? Let's read a couple of New Testament scriptures now. Let's go to Second Peter. <clears throat> Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 20. And we're just talking about suffering here for a little bit because it's going to become a part of uh, this lesson and I want it as a foundation that we don't have to go back over. We will have the principle established in our minds. What credit is it? Verse 20 of Second uh, Peter what I say, 2.20. For what credit is it when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? No, I think, am I in the wrong? wrong? No, I'm in the right, I'm in the right passage. Uh, we're in First Peter 2.20. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Well, I can't hear myself, so I don't know. Um, but think carefully about this verse. It's powerful. What credit is it if you sin and are harshly treated and you endure that with patience? You deserved it. You had it coming. You're being punished according to your act, your actions, your thinking. But if when you do what is right... You will not suffer because that's one of the promises of being a Christian. You become a Christian and you'll become wealthy, you'll become healthy, you'll be rich, right? Oh, yeah. 
It doesn't work that way. It might, but not because you're a Christian, probably. Probably, likely, it's just because you would have been that way anyway, whether you were a Christian or not. But Christianity ought to establish certain principles of conduct that will help you on the way. But still, that doesn't always work either. Remember in Malachi 3, um, the people cried up and said, of what value is there in serving God? And, um, well, God says, you know, writing through Malachi, well, there's much every way. Well, yes, but my, it looks to us when we look around the world that we live in that everybody is set up but us. Everything goes their way. And so what's the conclusion of Malachi or of God to Malachi? He says, well, you can't look at the conditions of people in this life and determine that. It has to be from the standpoint of when I take up my jewels. That's when you determine that factor. So we have to get our time right, don't we? But I don't know what verse that is, but I think it's in Malachi 3. A great verse to show. And, you know, and Malachi and Job... Uh, Job came, or uh, the devil came to Job and said, Job, um, you've got a lot of things going your way, but I know that you don't serve God for nothing. To the same principle. You don't serve God for nothing, and if you will begin to serve God, God will pay you for it. God will reward you for it. That are growing uh, fantastically is that you will be rewarded if you're a Christian in temporal and material things because you don't but see that falls right into Satan's trap you don't serve God for nothing so therefore let's get to the bottom of the line I'm going to start testing Job that was behind Satan's temptations of Job was <laughs> He assumed God was paying Job to be loyal to God with and for. And as he took, you know, his family away and his farm away and everything away, but Job came back and uh, <clears throat> said, I came out of this, into this world naked, and that's how I'll go back, but I'm going to stay true. We get caught up in the world's that the world's thinking of what Christianity is about, and um, it's a delusion. So here, you if, but if when you do what is right and suffer for it, so can Christians who do right suffer? That's the question we ought to be asking. Why, of course, and if they do suffer, they're to bear it patiently. They're, they're to develop resilience, strength. Now, this finds favor with God. So how you, how you deal with your suffering when you've done what is right is what finds favor with God. If you've done what is wrong and suffer, you've got it coming. You were being punished. But those who are doing the right thing and still suffer, 
they're not being punished, but they're still suffering. And they may be suffering right along with those who did wrong. You see that I, that concept? I think we all do. Look at chapter 3 and verse 14 of Peter, 1 Peter 3 and verse 14. <clears throat> but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are spoken well of or blessed, and do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. He goes on to give us great advice, but he said, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, hang in, stay true all the way. Look at chapter 4. Now remember, he's writing these books uh, not many years before uh, the at the edge of the tribulation uh, going into the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, that time frame makes this even more pertinent for us to understand. Verse 14 of chapter 4. <clears throat> um, 4.14. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are spoken well of, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. You can be reviled. Make sure that none of you suffers, though, as a murderer or a thief, evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. Now, what's, what's a troublesome meddler? Somebody who gets into other people's business. It's a lot like what you do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you've got it, Alex. So... <clears throat> Those are great principles to learn, but overall the principle is that punishment and suffering are not synonymous. And here in chapter 7, we have introduced to us that the saints are exempt from the punishment and judgment of God, but some of them are going to suffer along with those whom God is punishing, but they themselves are not being punished, but they are still suffering. If you have that in mind, it will clear up some of the confusion that arises as we go down. <clears throat> so even though the righteous, and this is on your notes, that even uh, where it says consider the second time down, that though the righteous are exempt for, for exempt from a given judgment, this doesn't mean they can't suffer during it. Now, if you've got that principle clear, then keep it clear as we get into some of these troubling passages. Because now we have the marked people, and the marked people go untouched in the judgment of God, but some of them still suffer. So let's go back. In verse 1, after this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back. There's a pause that before chapter 6 explodes upon the earth, we've got to get things ready. There has to be, there has to be some time. There has to be an interlude. So we're looking now at the recess between the announcements of judgments and now the execution of those judgments. <clears throat> 
I think it's probably appropriate now that we go back to Ezekiel chapter 9. This is foundational material, and Alex last week gave me permission to read from the Old Testament. Didn't you, Alex? So I'm going to do so. I was going to with or without his permission, but I appreciate having it. Um, And we're going to look at the entire chapter of Ezekiel 9. It's the model now that we need to plug into. How many of you have read the whole chapter of Ezekiel, whole chapter 9? Probably sometime in life you have. Um, so let's just, be, let's, I'll, I'll read it because I'm, uh, it's being recorded. Let's look at verse 1. Chapter 9, the book of Ezekiel. We're considering this as a model for what we're going to be looking at in chapter 7. Now, folks, when you pay attention and you get these principles right and the symbols right, then you'll, you'll notice how easy it is to clear up the text in Revelation. It just becomes a breeze. Then he cried out in verse 1, he cried out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Draw near, O executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. That's an awesome thought. Bring on the executioners. Bring your weapons. Behold, verse 2, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his shattering weapon in his hand. And among them was a certain man clothed in linen with a writing case at his loins. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Then the glory of God, of the God of Israel, went up from the cherub on which it had been to the threshold of the temple And he called to the man clothed in linen at whose loins was the writing case. Is that reading pretty much the same? And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem. Put a mark. On the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. Now pause. Get that in your mind. The Lord said, put a mark on the foreheads of those men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. That's quite an assignment. There is a judgment taking place here. 
hold that line, but keep verse four. I've got I have it all underlined in red because sometimes I can't find this stuff anymore. But to the Lord, to the others, he said in my hearing, <clears throat> "Go through the city after him and strike." So the man who was clothed in linen, at whose loins was the writing case, was told to go out and put a mark on all the foreheads of those who are and have remained true to God. But to the others who do not have, to others he said in my hearing, now you guys, you go through the city. You see there were six in verse two, right? But to the others he said in my hearing, you go through the city after him and strike. Be tenderhearted, merciful. Mm. We just can't look at God. Right. We just can't look at God the way the God who is there is. The Lord is speaking. He said, I want you to mark those and make a judgment on those who are concerned about the abominations taking place in Jerusalem. To the other people, you go through the city after him and you strike. Do not let your eye have pity and do not spare. That's the God that we need to get a hold of today so that we understand the meaning of Jesus coming to show us the other side of God without removing this side of God because it is a part of the justice of God. Verse 6. Utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, little children, and women. But, but do not touch any man. And because the word here, um, anthropos, is used, is probably referring to any one, not male, female, or child necessarily. Uh, it's, it's mankind in general, likely. <clears throat> Do not touch <coughs> any man on whom is the mark, and you shall start from my sanctuary, from where my name dwells. You will start there. You will start with the church. Now, what... There's a principle here that we can make applicable to our situation today in the big picture is that we have people in the church that condone everything that's going on in the world and have no 
vocal contents or visible contents against anything that's going on in Hollywood, Washington, D.C., or anywhere else. It's an eye-opener that we need to get back to the Old Testament to see how God thinks so that we understand the depth of the mercy that comes through Jesus. Do not touch any man on whom is the mark, and you shall start from my sanctuary. And so they started with the elders who were before the temple. Now that's a good place to start. Right in the leadership. I wonder how many leaders we'd have in our churches in Coolidge today if everyone was having to face the same circumstance. And he said to them, Defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. Thus they went out and struck down the people in the city. And as they... And as they were striking the people and I alone was left, I fell on my face and cried out, saying, Alas, Lord God, are you destroying the whole remnant of Israel by pouring out your wrath on Jerusalem? And then he said to me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is very, very great. And the land is filled with blood. And the city is full of perversion. Actually, they should have put in here just simply an alternate lifestyle. You're all not very quick tonight, are you? (laughs) Full of perversion. For they say, the Lord has forsaken the land and the Lord does not see. Two more verses. But as for me, my eye will not will have no pity, nor will I spare, but I will bring their conduct upon their heads. You see, your thinking is responsible for your conduct. So their heads are going to have to pay the price for the conduct they've engaged in. Then behold the man clothed in linen, at whose loins was the written case reported, saying, I have done just as you have commanded me. Now that's the background for where we are. And we want to keep that in mind. So when we come to verse 1, we have an interlude. We've already learned that uh, the righteous, whether they die or not, are exempt from the judgment. And also in verse 1, that when he introduces winds, winds indicate the activity of God. And we might look at just a couple of verses, but don't forget where we've been tonight because we're going to draw on that as we progress and we're not going to have much time to do that tonight, but we'll keep that in mind. Let's go to Isaiah 50, 
57. <clears throat> Isaiah 57. Just to get an idea now, just adding some more background so that we can uh, draw some suggestions on the symbolism here. Isaiah 57 and verse 13. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. But the wind will carry all of them up, and a breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me will inherit the land, and I will possess my holy mountain. The wind here is the activity will carry all of them up. That was the activity of God. Winds often indicate the activity of God. It is God that is going to bring this judgment upon those uh, about which this book is written. Uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Let's go over and look at Jeremiah in chapter 18 and verse 17. Jeremiah 18, 17. Like an east wind, I will scatter them. So there is the symbolism. Like an east wind will I scatter them before the enemy. I will show them my back and not my face in the day of their calamity. The activity of God is shown symbolically by the wind. So when they are holding back at the four corners, the universal um, um, geography of the earth, holding back the four winds, the four activities of God, that it's going to be God's activity that he's talking about, coming to judge the folks who have gone awry. <clears throat> but now there is a command that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. We have a pause. Something is going to take place. There's a recess between the announcement of judgments and the execution of them in chapter 6 and 7. <clears throat> so now we have uh, a, a discussion of the day of escape for spiritual Israel in verse beginning here in verse 2. Um, wind is both powerful and is invisible. Can you ever see the wind? You can only see the effect of it. And right now, or yesterday, when I talked to my friend up in Portland, he said they were getting 50-mile-an-hour wind down the Columbia River Gorge, and coming, coming down from the east is cold, it's bitter cold. And at 50 miles an hour, uh, that's not going to cause a lot of damage, but Troutdale, we have expectations of it to be 90, and it's been recorded at, at 125. That's a powerful wind that's been just channeled down the gorge. And it comes down there, it takes, it takes board, lifts two befores up and drives them close to a wall if you're doing construction work down there. It speeds up because of the narrowness. It, that's right. Uh, it, it goes, you know, the, the wind currents are up high, and then when they come down and they get compressed into that gorge area, it just, the um, velocity just is fierce. And, of course, be, be, being that it's come from the east, it's going to be cold coming off of the Cascade Mountain Range. Can't quite catch old red, though. No, can't, can't, uh, no, no. <laughs> well... Yeah, it can. <laughs> I hate to say that, but it can. <clears throat> it's it's miserable. We live right on the bluff, right on the top of the bluff. Um, 
that you just hear that wind howl. But it would hit the bluff and then roll over the top of our house and never, we had a brick house, it never hit the house directly. But you could just hear it roar, sometimes six weeks with no break. Just roared in, the, in this, this time of the year. It's tiring. Oh, it just wears you out. Yeah. You're right, it just wears you out. So wind is powerful. And, and, and it's invisible. So that's why it helps us to get an idea of these judgments of God and why they're described as wind. See? Because they're powerful. But they're being held back because something needs to be done first. We have a little recess. So in verse 3, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees. Oh, I, I, mean, I missed verse 2, didn't I? And I saw another angel ascending. Oh, now this is good news. Arising from the, uh, ascending from the rising of the sun. And I've got some verses down here we're not going to take time that just talk about sun being you know, the bright side of God and and light <clears throat> and hope. Having the seal of the living God. Yeah. He has, this one has the seal of the living God. He's from the rising of the sun. And he cried out with, I want to know what you mean by that in just a minute. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. And he's got a message. So here we have the wind being held back. The wind represents what? The powerful judgments of God, invisible. But they're being held back by the four angels from uh, a universal application upon the earth. Explore that with me, what you said there, just a little bit. Well, just having, if you want to. having the seal, uh, that's, uh, that, that makes a, a big difference. I mean, that's something they recognize as, as being good. It's something they recognize as uh, maybe some kind of salvation. They, and, they recognize, that's right. It was something that rec- they recognized in him that he had authority. So... <clears throat> He cried out with a loud voice of the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. So now we find that that's what the four winds are up to. They're going to represent the, the judgment of God, powerful and maybe and yet invisible in its force. Not always, but at least initially. He cries out with a loud voice of the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. So here's mercy implied that we're going to have a waiting period, we're going to have a little recess, saying in verse 3, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees. That's pretty broad. There are some things we're not even, that we're not to hurt. Do not hurt anything until what? Till we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And our time is about gone, but let me make just a statement or two. One is, 
that the sealing here is not for man, but it's for the agents of judgment, just as it was back in Ezekiel chapter 9. The sealing is not for man to see, it's not for the man, but it's for the angels who are going to be carrying out the judgment of God. What does forehead mean in the Greek? I think it means um, just the upper part of the head or the thinking portion. And I don't, uh, I I don't know that. See, there was no literal marking in Ezekiel, chapter one, or in chapter I mean chapter nine. No literal marking that we know of. There's no record of there being any literal, physical, seeable, touchable marking. But it was some kind of a marking, that it never tells us what it was but it had to do with how a person thought because of what it was and that it was noticed by those who were the agents of judgment. They could see it. Now, I don't know how because I don't believe we're told that. We're not told that in Ezekiel 9. It's not said. And we just know that it was a marking that was not designed for man, but it was designed for the agents of the judgment to see. Spiritually discerned. Spiritually discerned. That's my opinion on that. And I know there are people that go off on all kinds of literal stuff on this, but I'm not sure they can justify it. And we'll get into, of course, when you get into chapter, verse 4, there's some new avenues opened up. I have a a quote here from uh, Jesse Mills in verse 3. There are known facts that fit. Eusebius reports that the people in the church of Jerusalem, by a certain oracle given by revelation, had been ordered to be re- to remove themselves before the war and inhabit Pella, a city in Perea. And I've given you the references to where that's found, but I found that reference in Jesse Mill's book, Revelation, Survey and Resource. It's a worthy book to have as a resource book. And um, so there is um, secular history <coughs> that um, fit where we are in this chapter in Revelation. Any questions tonight? Our time is up. My voice is gone. Any comments? We'll try to zero home uh, a little tighter maybe uh, on some of this next week. But I think it's, it, gets, it gets pretty obvious. Um, <clears throat> I think, anyway. Father, we are thankful for uh, these choice moments for the great fellowship when we're in the truth together, exploring it and dissecting it to get a full meaning 
they're the best that we are capable of, that we can understand more about you and your thinking, and that we can begin to think more like you think. And may this book aid us in that pursuit. In Christ's name, amen. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.